Hey, what's up, everybody? This is The Greatest Show on Dirt coming to you live from the TV studios. I am your host, Quentin, and today's episode is 70s Baseball Part 3. And I'm going to talk about some ballparks, some ballparks of the 70s. Now, there's going to be some overlap in this episode because some of the ballparks were built in the 60s and didn't get torn down to the 80s and 90s. But I've got to uh, definitely cover some that I thought were close to my heart because it's like watching, like baseball's great, but, you know, baseball's a very nostalgic sport. At least it is to me, but I think it is to a lot of folks as well. And where we watch the games is almost just as meaningful as the games that we watch, right? Like, there are so many memories I have of, like, watching the, uh, for example, the 2003 NLCS when the Cubs got beat by the Marlins. And me and my dad were just in the living room watching it. You know what I mean? And the pain of that, like, still sticks in my heart. But I remember that living room, right? Like, my parents still live in that same house. And it's sort of like, you know, it was 2003, but, like, my parents, I'm pretty sure, still had a Magnavox console TV. You know what I mean? And it was like, we just watched the game in there, me and my old man, and it was a good time. And it's like, even though the Cubs lost that game in that series, like, I don't care. It doesn't really diminish it for me. I've never, and I don't know if it's like a byproduct of being a Cubs fan because they just never won anything or just me loving the nostalgia of the sport, but me getting enjoyment out of watching baseball games with friends and family really never had anything to do with the team winning and losing. I mean, it did in that moment, right? But I realized whether the team won or lost, I was probably apt to get blackout drunk. But I'm like, well, whatever, right? Who really gives a shit? But when I look back on it now, I look back at the 2003 Cubs season with fondness because, yeah, they lost, right? And they were, whatever, five outs away from a World Series. But it was really about, you know, the times I had watching, you know, that game with my dad and then that series with my dad and my grandpa because my grandpa lived across the street. And, you know, I would go to his house and watch the games. He had like this game room or whatever. So it had like a pool table in it, like a couple little like old person rocking chairs with pads that were like a foot and a half thick. And it was so comfortable. And he had a mini fridge in there. So like in the all through like growing up, because, you know, you, we could catch the Cubs games on WGN. So, and he lived, he lived across the street from my parents. So during like summer vacation, I would walk across the street to my grandpa's at like two o'clock and catch the Gov, Cubs game on WGN. And, you know, I'd pull up in my old person rocker chair. That sucker, it's way back and forth, man. And we would get in the mini fridge and he would drink a Keystone Light and I would drink a Barg's Root Beer. And we would watch the game on this 13-inch Emerson tube TV. And, I mean, those were from, I mean, hell, I was born in 83. So, if you factor in 83 until my grandpa passed away, which was in 2009, none of those Cubs had a team worth a shit outside of 03 and 08. So, we were basically just watching an execution every time we watched a baseball game. And it wasn't our team that was doing it, you know. But, again, what I'm trying to say is it's, you know, I love to explore like those moments in time where I watch baseball, which is one of the reasons why I'm excited to cover a lot of ballparks on here. But, you know, I think it's it's fun to, you know, explore our own experiences in that. Like, so check this out. So during the 2016 World Series, me and my wife, who was my girlfriend at the time, or actually she was just my fiance. So if she hears this, she's going to be mad at me and say that I have my timelines confused. So I'll be on the couch for a while. And uh, so we go 
to Chicago for the 2016 World Series, but we um, we didn't get tickets for it. Like one of us was going to have to pull heavy out of our 401k, and we just decided not to do it. So we're like, well, we'll go to Chicago and we'll just like be in Wrigleyville. You know, we'll go to some bars, do some heavy drinking, you know, stuff like that. And, you know, sort of watch the games on the TV or whatever. So one night we find this dive bar called L&L Tavern. And it's like super sketchy, man. It's like a brick building with like these like thick stained glass windows. So you can't really even see in the place. And it's like a cash only bar, which if you if you go anywhere that's cash only, like you're looking good, man. You know, it's like a breakfast place, a breakfast joint, or a bar that's cash only, that will be the best bar you ever go to in your life, right? So we go to this place, and it is just cash only, $2 hams, $2 old style, $2 PBR, right? So if you have exquisite taste and a few bucks in your wallet, you can get pretty hammered if you want to, man, right? So we go in the place, and immediately, it's dark and dingy, and there are tube TVs all over the wall, man. And this is in 2016. Not an LCD or LED or whatever the hell these TVs are. Listen, not one anywhere in the whole entire place. And I absolutely loved it. Now, I don't know. One of my staples is cash only in wood paneled walls. Now, I don't know if this place had wood paneled walls. You you understand what I'm saying, right? Like, if you go anywhere, cash only is a big thing. If you go to any restaurant and they have cash only, chances are you're getting good breakfast, good pizza, whatever. But now if you hit the perfect cash only in wood paneled walls, which they may have had at L&L Tavern, but wood paneled walls, that is a staple of a good breakfast and a good beer. I love it. There's a place that I used to go to in Carbondale, Illinois called Mary Lou's Diner. And they're cash only and they have wood paneled walls, you know, and I like the fact that they're cash only because they're sort of like resisting technology. You know what I mean? Like this is sort of like an old school baseball podcast. So I don't really talk a lot about it really any right about advanced data, you know, partially because I'm not that great at math, but also I just don't give a shit about it. Like I like charging the mound, bow ties, stealing and bunts, right? Give it to me, you know? And I look at these places that are like cash only and they're like, yo, fuck technology and fuck statistics, right? We don't have a Facebook and we don't take your debit card because we don't want any of that crap, man. Like, do you want, do you want biscuits and gravy or not? You know what I mean? If so, give me a $5 bill because cash rules, man. And like, I dig it. You know what I mean? Like, screw that stuff. Like, yeah, I'll go to the ATM and get cash. And then plus they're probably working under the table, right? So it's like, you don't really want to pay taxes on that. But hey, man, you know, I just want my biscuits and gravy. And if you're going to resist technology and cook it with good lard, like, let's do it. You know what I mean? I'm ready to, you know, put my heart on the line, you know, like literally my heart on the line. I might have a heart attack here, but cook them good, man. Cook them good. So yeah, the wood paneled walls. Did you know Shea Stadium? I'll talk about this later. Shea Stadium used to have wood paneled walls in their dugout. And I'm like, no wonder why everybody had a hard time partying in that dugout. They were probably selling $2 beers in the clubhouse. Shit, man. But I just, I loved it, dude, going to this L&L Tavern and seeing these tube TVs on the wall. And I'm like, dude, this is just like watching baseball with my grandpa. Like, I loved it. They had five or six tube TVs on the wall. And plus, it was a filthy bar. And like, I liked it, you know? Like, I don't want to go watch a game at Buffalo Wild Wings with like kids screaming at the next table and like, ugh, you know, like I don't, a sticky floor. Well, I don't really care about a sticky, sticky floors and bat in a 
uh, Buffalo Wild Wings, man. Like, the floors are just sticky. But I just realized as I say that the floors at L&L Tavern were sticky probably with blood because it was a sketchy place. And also, apparently at this place called L&L Tavern, John Wayne Gacy and Jeffrey Dahmer used to frequent this bar. And, well, they're notorious serial killers, right? So that's one key aspect of a bar. So do let, <laughs> let's do this. Cash only, wood panel walls, fear of murder. <laughs> Like, hey, why is the floor sticky? Did someone spill some beer? No. <laughs> that's that's a crime scene. That's DNA evidence you're stepping on, pal. It's like, okay, buddy. But also, what was even crazier about this bar? So it's like October, right? It was like the last week of October. We're in there. So I'm walking in the bar. I like walk to the bathroom, dude, which I basically needed a tetanus shot after <laughs> I used it because this shit was dirty. But what I'm saying is like I loved the dinginess of it, man. Like I... Like, this dingy bar, like, represented, like, gritty, gritty baseball to me. Like, baseball is like a blue-collar workings, man, gritty, grimy sport, dude. And, like, that's what I love, man. If you look at guys like Ricky Henderson or Pete Rose, like, they always had dirty jerseys. And, like, that's what I love. And that's sort of what I love about old ballparks, too, was, uh, you know, so many of them were just, uh, you know, they were grimy, right? Yeah, so, like, I love it. But, you know, like, when it comes to the grimy stuff, man, sometimes, like, right, you realize it's a pretty arbitrary thing for someone to say, like, new is better than old or, you know, fast is better than slow and stuff like that. And, like, that's sort of how I feel about, like, my baseball watching experience. So anytime, like, I talk about, like, certain, like, times that, like, memorable times that I watched a good baseball game, a lot of them will be just, like, old, grimy, dirty, and dingy because, like, those are the things that, like, I sort of hold on to, like, you know, like growing up, like when I talk about my dad taking me to baseball practice in an 87 S10 with an ashtray so overflowed, you know, I'm like, dad, are you on trial for murder? Or did you just have a busy day? Like, why are you smoking so many cigarettes? But it was just like, again, like his truck was just like a dirty work truck, man. When, you know, the smell of like your, your, your baseball glove and your batting gloves, but just sweat and dirt and you smell them. And it's just like, Ooh, it smells so bad. And I like it, you know? And like, that's always, like, sort of how I felt about my baseball watching experience, man, and, like, the nostalgia of it. And L&L Tavern, this bar in Chicago, was just like that, just this grimy place. And so I'm, what, I'm, what I was getting at was I, was, I walked to the bathroom, and to my right-hand side, do you know those blow-mold Christmas um, yard ornaments, like the big plastic Santas and Frosty the Snowman? So I'm walking by it up on the wall above my head. There's a Mary and Joseph and a Jesus blow mold Christmas ornaments. They're probably, Mary and Joseph are probably four feet tall. And then Jesus is probably a foot and a half. Mary and Joseph had PBRs in their hand. And Jesus had a paper plate in his hand, which I assuming used to have mozzarella sticks on it before the nativity scene family had a few beers and had some mozzarella sticks. And I'm like, this is my bar. And this is the place, dude. And it was just so legit, man. And I love it, dude. And, but also, dude, like I remember like watching baseball games. I used to watch White Sox games in my room on this big old, big old tube TV, man. It was um like a console TV. Like you remember, well, if you're listening to this podcast, you probably do remember it if you're over like 35 years old. But like, you know, like before flat screen TVs and even before tube TVs, they had those console TVs, which were basically like 800 pounds, right? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like if you load one of those in your house, you're for sure going to need a hernia surgery and like 20, uh, I don't know, Xanax or Vicodins or something, man. Because the TVs were like the, as heavy as a Geo Metro. 
and they were just like works of art, dude. Like these like fancy varnished wood finished things, and you could just put anything on the top of them, right? So the key, <laughs> the key to having a console TV, which this happened in my house a few times, man. Where, like, the console TV goes out, but the thing's so fucking big, you don't want to move it. So you go buy a 19-inch RCA and put it on top of the console TV, and you don't even move the console TV. So you have a non-working console TV. Then you have a 19-inch TV on top of it, plus, like, your Nintendo and your Sega, and you playing, like, Contra and Double Dragon and Baseball Stars, and it's like, yep. Then you got the cable box, dude. Like, yeah, man, that was legit, dude, and... And then, like, one time, we, uh, my, my brother, he took a lot of electronics classes, so he helped us steal HBO, and that was pretty cool, too. So we would steal cable for sure, and that was back when you could steal cable. But you can't do that sort of thing anymore because the, the technology is too fancy for it, you know? Like, I, I try to steal YouTube TV. Uh, you know, I don't really know how to do it, but maybe I should research it. That's for entertainment purposes only. I'm not really going to steal cable, but it's a rush when you do it, man. It's so legit. But yeah, back to the, uh, you'll notice when I record these podcasts, I'll go off on a lot of tangents, my apologies, but um, so I would, yeah, so I would watch the socks on this big console TV, now what's called the Space Command, because you can make telephone calls to it, so you can hook it up to a landline, and you would open up the wooden door, and it just had a keypad in it, like a cell phone, right, and I'm looking at kids today, and I'm like, well, you think you can text message or whatever, but have you ever made a phone call through a TV? Have you ever made a phone call through a 500-pound TV? Because <laughs> I have, right, and I would just watch these White Sox games, and I would get, like, my little red baseball glove and a bouncy ball that I got out of the quarter machine at the grocery store and just throw the bouncy ball against my dresser and just field grounders, and it was just good times, man. It really was. And that's sort of, you know, when I look at times like that, man, I think it's just so special to, you know, think about, you know, the times we had with friends and family. And it's just so fun, though, to look back on those times and, you know, think all the good times we had and realize that, you know, when it comes to baseball, it's not just a game, but it's, you know, it's the people that we share it with. And obviously this being a baseball nostalgia podcast, like I always want to be careful not to like live in the past. And I think it's important that we can look at, you know, moments like that and sort of remember those, but use them to en enjoy the game now. And, you know, baseball may may be or may not what, may be or may not be, you know, what you want it to be that, but that still doesn't mean you can't enjoy it in a certain way. And, you know, it's not even just baseball, but it's sports in general that sort of give us these, you know, it's an outlet for sure, but it also, like, I guess it helps create a scene and it gives folks a reason just to, like, get together, you know, and, you know, have some mozzarella sticks and drink a few shitty beers, you know what I mean, and just really, really have some fun. So, um, but, yeah, dude, I'm super excited about this podcast for sure, man. It's going to be good. Okay, so check this out, though. Before I get into my first ballpark, I have to talk about this minor league ballpark that was by my house, right? So I live... I live really close to Charlotte, North Carolina, but I'm on the South Carolina side because the uh, the taxes are cheaper and the schools are rougher, right? I want to raise my kid with a little bit of violence. So, <laughs> so oh, shit. Uh, yeah. There was um, – so the uh, the Chicago White Sox, they, have, they had a single-A baseball team called the Kannapolis Intimidators because Dale Earnhardt was from Kannapolis, and his nickname was the Intimidator. So uh, a stellar baseball stash right there, man. I bet if Dale Earnhardt, Dale Earnhardt, sorry, wasn't driving uh, race cars, he probably would have been a hell of a shortstop or third baseman or, you know, 
Dale Earnhardt probably would have been like a pitcher, sort of like a Nolan Ryan-esque like type dude who would just throw you a bow tie and kick your ass when he was done, right? Sort of like when Nolan Ryan beat up Robin Ventura. And did you realize that Nolan Ryan was 46 when he beat up Robin Ventura, who was 26? Like, fucking awesome, dude. But anyway, man, so they changed the name of the team since. They're the Canapolis Cannonballers, but they didn't get to play this year, right? Because of, uh, you know, everything, right? So, but... They, and they moved into a new stadium, too. But this was the old stadium, right? So the Canapolis Intimidators played at a stadium called Intimidator Stadium, which you get me right there on number one. If a stadium doesn't have a corporate sponsor, like, I immediately love you, right? Just like I love a cash-only $2 hams beer because if you're not drinking skunky beer with a headache and a hangover, you don't deserve to be a fan of your team. Like, get hammered and suffer with them, right? So... And that was it. So, like, no corporate sponsors, just Intimidator Stadium. And the stadium was small, man. It was sort of like a Pony League field, right? At your, uh, at your local park, dude. It was the shit. But what was even better, man, is it just had, like, a basic scoreboard. No, like, crazy digital scoreboard. It was, like, a basic scoreboard with red digital letters. Like, it looked like a Timex watch from 1980. It looked like it looked like the scoreboard on your Mustang field when you played Little League. And I was like, dude, I love it, right? It didn't even tell you how fast the pitch was thrown. It didn't even tell you the batter's first name. Like, you just got a last name. And I was like, hell yeah, dude. Absolutely loved it. And the place also only had physical billboards on the fence, like watching Bad News Bears or something. But what was even better is they had corn dogs and funnel cakes for cheap. Like, I thought I was at the fair about to win a fake pair of Oakleys and a whoopee cushion. <laughs> like, I was like, hell yeah, dude. And plus, you would get burgers that they would just wrap them in foil. Like, I assume they probably warmed them up in a microwave, like a little white microwave for 50 bucks from Walmart wrapped in a foil and gave you the burger. And it was like, everything was two bucks, man. Like, if you want a corn dog, it was $2. Funnel cake, two bucks. Burger, two bucks. Like, it was so awesome, man. And the thing about it is, is I would just go to the park and, you know, I would eat everything that I could. And it was... uh I mean, you sort of had to, man, with prices like that. It's sort of like when, you know, like when you go out with uh, your girlfriend or your wife or whatever, or maybe your husband, you know, if there are those people out there, you know, notwithstanding sex or gender that will say, oh my God, it's on sale. I got to buy it. Right. Oh man, it's on sale. I got to get it. Well, that's how I felt about these corn dogs and funnel cakes at Canapolis at Intimidator Stadium because, like, they were all on sale, and I felt like I had to buy them. Like, what do you mean? What do you mean? The corn dogs, two bucks? Oh, damn, they're on sale. Yo, let me get 10 of them, and I ate 10 corn dogs. I ate 10 in one setting. I didn't care. Listen, I had a goal, and I took Nexium. And Tums, everything I could before the game to calm my acid reflux, man, because I had a number in my head, just like Barry Bonds trying to hit 756 home runs. I said, I'm going to do it, man. I'm going to eat. I'm going to eat 10 corn dogs. I'm going to do it. And I'm like, you know, I know that if I don't take this Nexium, and even if I do take the Nexium, like I might burn a hole in my esophagus. I might be the Kurt Schilling bloody sock of eating corn dogs from the concession stand. But like I did it and I wasn't on any sort of marijuana or anything like that, man. And these were just like the good fried fair corn dogs. Like, dude, like, yes, man. And they were just delicious, you know? And it's like, 
I, you know, like it was just so good. Like I had to have them. And it was just like that same mentality where like, hey, if it's on sale, like I'm going to get it, dude. And the hamburgers, you know, they were even phenomenal, dude. Like they were just wrapped in the foil. They were nice and warm. You get it, man. You taste the burger. It's sort of like a school burger you would get like in junior high. But since it's in a baseball park and you got it for $2 and not like seven fifty, but a blood sample, it's way better than what you would think it is, man. And like that to me was awesome. But I'm a big corn dog guy. Like I love a good corn dog. I'll go to Trader Joe's and get corn dog. I'll go to Walmart and get the state fair corn dogs. But I'll tell you this, I don't have the patience to cook one in the oven. I won't do it. If you want me to pre an oven for 425, I'd rather build a fire outside. Like I'm just not going to do it. I'm going to put them in the microwave. If I'm feeling real fancy, I'll flip them after 30 seconds and just make a good corn dog. You know, it'll be a little rough when you get to the bottom of it, like towards the stick, but like, Hey man, I'm gritty, right? Like, yo, what up, dude? I'll cook. Listen, I don't give a shit. I'll cook anything in a microwave. Like I'll give it a shot. I don't even care if it doesn't have microwave instructions. Like I find it just so funny though. Like when you get things and they've got microwave and oven instructions, but then they also have microwave instructions too. And I'm like, <laughs> I'm not cooking that in the fucking oven. I'm not warming. I'm not preheating that thing. That takes time, man. I'm so impatient when it comes to food, dude. I'll, uh, I'd almost rather eat the corn dog completely frozen, right? <laughs> like, but dude, I've cooked some wild stuff in there, man. Like egg sandwiches, dude, I will, I will slaughter. I will cook you an egg sandwich so good in the microwave, man. And then serve you Vienna sausages with it on a plate. You'll be like, yo, this is so good, man. Yeah, I would cook a, <laughs> when I was a kid, I would get two eggs and I would crack them in, in a plastic bowl. Now, I don't know if the plastic bowl was microwave safe or whatever kind of toxins from the plastic were seeping into my egg. I think I'm okay now physically. I'm not really too sure, but I would just do that and then cook it for two minutes, slap the egg between two pieces of that Roman bread. What's it like the King Roman bread or something? And then get a good, uh, good egg sandwich out of it. Man, cook some rice in the microwave, butter, sugar sandwiches. Have I told you about butter sugar sandwiches? Listen, if I haven't served time in jail, but if you have, you might be familiar with the butter sugar sandwich. You uh, just put butter on a piece of bread, put sugar on it, put it in the microwave for 10 seconds, get a butter knife or butterfly knife if you're looking to protect yourself because you were previously in prison and just, um, you know, move it around and spread it on the sandwich and then eat it. It's so good. <laughs> it's so good. Yeah. And uh, it's just delicious, right? Pop-Tarts, I'm a big microwave Pop-Tart guy because... Uh, quicker again i like you can cook a pop tart in the microwave for 15 seconds if you got a s'more you might want to cook it for 18 seconds because you want to get the chocolate and the marshmallow gooey right but like i'm not gonna waste the time to cook that in a toaster toasters are for fancy people man toasters toasters are like um i don't know hitting home runs or striking outs but i feel like if you use a microwave that's like a sack butt like that's a gritty gritty move right there but also like fish sticks I'll cook a fish stick in a microwave, put it at 50% because the fish stick is frozen, man. This is how the thing works. I'll cook a hot dog in the microwave. Like, I really don't care, man. Like little frozen uh, pancakes. Oh, those aren't bad in the microwave, but you got to know how to do it. I'm like the Emerald Lagasse of a microwave. I'm like the dude that does bam with like the flavor town, but like in a microwave. Like, I will cook you a dish in the microwave so good. It's legit. Love a microwave. Hell yeah. But don't ever put the Pop-Tarts in the microwave with the foil wrapper on it. Because fucking 4th of July, <laughs> it's not good. Okay, now the first the first stadium I got to talk about is the Astrodome. Now, the Astrodome, that was the home of the Houston Astros. So in 1969, I believe that was the year, 
the New York, New York and Houston, they were awarded expansion teams. So New York got the Mets and the Astros got a team. The Houston got a team as well. But at first, the first they were named the Colt 45s, which I don't know if that's a reference to a handgun or the malt liquor, right? Is it Colt 45 as a malt liquor? I think I'm pretty sure I've drank a few of them. Yeah, Colt 45 is a malt liquor. Listen, we used to sneak, when we were 16, we were sneaking to Carbondale because that's where the college was. And you could get kids there to sell you beer at the liquor stores because, I mean, I don't know, they would just do it there. I guess they just didn't care. And so we but we didn't have a lot of money. So we were pretty much, honestly, I didn't, I don't think I've ever had a Colt 45, but because our drink was King Cobra because you could get a 40 ounce of King Cobra for like a buck 30 <laughs> and just get like two of those and just try to choke him down. Like, yo, you got to have some hair on your chest to drink a King Cobra 40 ounce. Like I'm going to take, I'm going to do my next Instagram video and try to take the King Cobra 40 ounce challenge and see if I can finish it without barfing in like under five minutes. Just a god awful beer, man. But um, I'm familiar with a Colt 45 because I love a 40 ounce beer, you know, besides my go-to being, um, you know, King Cobra, I do like a Miller High Life 40 ounce. That's when you get the Miller High Life 40 ounce in a pack of cigarettes and then just do some por good old porch sitting, man. Get your lawn chair, get you, you know, just sit out there in your underwear and you know, maybe have a gun on your hip. I'm not really too sure. Just whatever you do, man. And, but so that's what the Houston Astros started at. They started as the Colt 45. I mean, no better way to do it right in Houston, <laughs> Texas, man. Holy shit. So, but the Astrodome wasn't done yet. Right. So these guys had to play at like some park with again, like a little league scoreboard and they were building this big dome, but they didn't have a name for it yet. I think they were going to call it like the Harris County dome. Because Houston, I think, is in Harris County. But then they were somebody had the idea. They're like, oh, we'll call it the Astrodome because we'll call our team the Astros, right? So then that's how the Houston Astros came to be. They were the Colt 45s for three years. And their jerseys were basically a pistol with smoke pouring from the barrel. I'm like, hell yeah, man. But what's even funnier is, so like I said, they were the 45s for three years. And then they're like, okay, we're going to start building the Astrodome. We're going to get this thing built up. And called the Houston Astros. So they had a groundbreaking ceremony, right? You know how like fancy businesses do where they'll like get the big pair of scissors and they'll like set up a ribbon and have a ribbon cutting ceremony with like leaders and shit like that, right? They didn't do that with the Astrodome. So they had a bunch of community leaders show up to the ribbon cutting ceremony with guns. And instead of cutting a ribbon, they ribbon, they all drew their weapons and just started shooting them into the ground. Just bam, 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 shooting bullets into the ground. Like, this is our ground. This is the Astrodome. And we're about to shoot our guns into it. And I was like, only in Texas, motherfucker. Like, wow. Like, we don't need shovels, man. Like, let's just get this done. Like, what's more meaningful to us, though? And I think, like, just think about how this conversation went when, you know, the folks for the Ashram, they were like, you know, we ought to have a ribbon-cutting ceremony. And someone was like, well, hell, we ought to bring our guns. And then someone goes, well, hell, I got mine on me. Let's go do it now. And they probably just walked from the office straight down. They said, well, we don't, what are we going to rent? You know, where are we going to rent a big pair of scissors at? Oh, shit. Shit, Jed. Shit, Jed, where are we going to get a pair of scissors at? And they said, well, hell, I got my gun on me. I said, we just shoot our guns through the ribbon. They said, we ain't got a ribbon, but we can shoot our guns in the ground. Let's do it, son. I got my gun on me now. I got mine in the truck. I got a Mossberg on me. Let's go. Like, yeah, man, Texas, bro. Love it, dude. And, uh, oh, God, dude. And this place, dude, was so legit. It was the first dome ever. 
right? And it inspired a lot of other domes like the Metrodome, the King Dome, the RCA Dome in Indianapolis. So like when you look at domes now, it's like the Astrodome was like the first. It was the trailblazer. Like the Astrodome was it was just the original, right? And it it influenced everything and it was at one point the third most visited structure created by humans in the country behind only the Golden Gate Bridge in Mount Rushmore. I love it. On opening night in 1965 for the Houston Astros, President Lyndon B. Johnson was hosted by the Astros team president. So the team president, his guy, his name was Roy Hoffheinz. And he had Lyndon, Lyndon B. Johnson showed up to the game and they served LBJ fried chicken and ice cream. And he loved it, dude. This is the best, man. And also, dude, it is the scoreboard. The scoreboard they had in the Astrodome, it was 474 feet long. It cost them $2 million to make. Everything's bigger in Texas, man. And Dude, it if you would hit a home run, the scoreboard went crazy. Straight up, 45 seconds, animated cowboys shooting pistols. There was a bull that was snorting like fireworks out of its nose, man. It was phenomenal, dude. But like, I'm sort of have some qualms, some qualms with, is that the right word, a qualm? Uh, with every seat was cushioned. And the whole place had air conditioning. Now, I'm not sure if you go to a baseball game and you're in the air conditioning with a cushioned seat that, like, that counts as going to a real baseball game. Like, if you don't go to a baseball game and leave with a farmer's tan so bad and red on your arms that you might need to go to the emergency room, but you're also pretty sure that you're dehydrated because water 750, but beer's 850. So you drank 12 beers and zero waters and you're teetering on consciousness. Like, did you really go to a baseball game? Like going to a game and AC just, I don't know if that feels right. Like my wife and I went to a Marlins game and 2019 her uh, her grandparents lived just outside of Miami right so we went to a game and I was in there and I was comfortable like my back didn't ache I wasn't cramped partially because there weren't a lot of people there but it was just in the air conditioning and I was like I don't know if I like this or not man like I'll go to a game in Atlanta and just bitch about being hot like I'm like I hate it it sucks but if your balls aren't sticking to your legs when you walk out, like this is no man, like it doesn't, it's not a real baseball game that way. So, like, that's the only qualm I have with the Astrodome, you know, having like being maybe like not cool, right? Because it's cool. <laughs> but uh, the guns, dude, and the groundbreaking ceremony, man, dude, I love it. So legit. These guys are crazy in Texas, dude. Hell of a hell of a uh, stadium. But you listen, it still stands. The Astrodome still stands, and all of the seats for the Astrodome are still in the place, right? But they won't auction them off because the, um, well, they don't auction them off because the city or the state says that it's property of some historical society, and they have not given the okay to auction these seats off, which is crazy because you would think they would be worth a lot of money, but it might be damaged because apparently Astrodome is now a safe haven for rats and mice, so that's not good. It says... They say that the Astrodome is unsafe for human entry. But listen, I'm not. If I didn't have a kid, right, because I can't go to jail, 
I just can't do it. Like, I know that I've talked about how it would be fun to go to jail and make prison hooch so my loved ones outside could wear t-shirts that say free Quentin. You've heard me talk about this, right? But, like, I can't really go to jail. But, like, if if I didn't have a kid, right, I would possibly drive a tractor into the Astrodome. Did You heard me, like, on, what's it, four, five, six, seven, eight podcasts ago where the guy broke into Miller Park during quarantine and drove a tractor around the field. Like, that's what I feel like I could do. Like, I could just drive my car to Texas, probably just, like, find a tractor on the side of the road because it's Texas, and just, like, break into the Astrodome, like, on Ghost Hunters, man, and, like, see what's there, right? (laughs) And just be like, yo, what's in this Astrodome Stadium, man? Because it's empty and it's dirty and you you can't go in it. But Houston, they don't know what they're going to do with, uh, you know, the stadium or whatever. But back to all seriousness of it, though, and I'll close out the Astrodome, but this was a phenomenal park, man. There were a lot of great teams, great players that came through there. It was very much a pitcher's park, but there were guys that did damage in there. Like Jose Cruz, you know, had had good offensive numbers in the Astrodome, and it was, I mean, definitely the quintessential 70s park because especially you talk about the Astros and their wild uniforms. Like, it was a hell of a park, man. Oh, crap. I forgot one other thing. Listen, in in, in 1979, uh, towards the end of the season, like in September, the the 1979 Astros were only like one and a half games back from the division, right? Which is wild because the 79 Astros, I believe, are the last team ever to finish a season with more triples than home runs, right? Like this was a team that was speedy, but that was sort of the nature of AstroTurf in the Astrodome, right? Uh, because you couldn't, it was hard to hit a home run there. It was very much a pitcher friendly park. But if you had guys that could put the ball in play, like guys like Jose Cruz who could go opposite field and it would just look beautiful, man. Like so stylistically beautiful swing that going opposite field is. I absolutely love it. And the way that ball would probably just skip on the AstroTurf, you could hit some triples, man. And that was, yeah, the last team to hit more triples than home runs. But anyway, what I'm saying is they weren't a pennant race, right? So there's a local radio station, and they got, like, this 20-year-old kid that works at the radio station. And they were like, hey, man, we got a promotional idea we want to do with the radio station and the Astros. We want you to be, we want you to live on the roof until the Astros win the pennant. And he's like, okay, I'll do it, man. So this guy lived for 10 days, the last 10 days of the season, which the Astros didn't end up winning the pennant. They didn't make the postseason. They got beat out in 79. That would have been the Reds? Right in 79, the Pirates won the World Series. Right in 79, the Pirates beat the Orioles in the World Series in 79. Right? That was the We Are Family team. Yeah, that's right. Because in 71, the Pirates also beat the Orioles. But I don't know that that went seven. It did go seven games. And I think the uh, it was the Reds and the Pirates. And the Reds would have been in the division that the Astros were in, I think. Whatever. Um, but he, so he lived on there for 10 days. They had to, they had to reel him up food on a rope. He was like 18 stories up in the air. The first night he's on the roof, he was sleeping in a sleeping bag and there were torrential downpours, man. And, uh, but he said the rest of the time he was up on the roof after like night one, he said it was lovely, dude. And he just lived on the roof, man. Now that's what he did for his team. And that's what I'm saying. Like, if you're about your team, like, what what sort of length would you go to? Like, would you live on the roof of a stadium if it meant that, you know, it might help your team win? You know, I don't know how it helps the team win. 
but one of the Astro starters asked the guy named Denver. That's the guy's name that was living on the roof, Denver. He asked him if he could take a piss on Tom Seaver's head because Tom Seaver, man, like, how are you going to beat him? Like, have the guy on the roof pee on him if you can, man. I don't really know what to say. Uh, hell of a story, man. 70s, a wild time. I couldn't imagine anyone doing that now. You know, living on top of like, uh, I don't know, the Tropicana Field Dome, where Tropicana Dome, Tropicana Field, where the uh, the Tampa Bay Rays play. I don't know, man, if that's safe or not. <laughs> uh, yeah, they need a new stadium, right? Like, I'm not going to get on the roof of that place. No way, dude. But wild stories in the 70s, man. Anything goes, dude. Listen, okay, the next stadium I got to talk about, Comiskey Park. Old Comiskey Park, torn down in, what was it, 1990, I think is how long it lasted. And this, listen, Comiskey Park was the jam, bro. This place was called the world's largest outdoor saloon. It was where livers <laughs> went to die. Like, this place was nuts. First and foremost, they had beer halls under the stands behind home plate. Now, I got that out of an article. Like, a beer hall like I don't first I don't know who calls anything a beer hall anymore. I'm gonna go down to the beer hall and get me a few schlitz you know what I mean like I feel like if you go somewhere and they call it a beer hall you're not coming back man <laughs> you know what I'm saying like things are gonna happen man a beer's gonna be drunk like it's never been drunk before and like like a bingo hall, you know what I mean? Like people go to bingo halls to like play bingo for like six hours straight, like nothing else, man. There aren't windows in the place. Like we're at the bingo hall and I'm looking to win enough money where I can maybe go on a cruise. And a beer hall, man, is just, there's gotta be like gambling down there, dice, illegal poker. <laughs> like, I don't know what kind of stuff a fucking beer hall, man. Who calls it that, dude? But that's what they said. They said there were beer halls <laughs> behind home plate, man. I mean, that's just, that's sketchy stuff, man. There's definitely a lot of pool sharks down there. Their legs are getting busted. Legs get busted at the beer halls, my man. And also, there was a shower in the center field bleachers to cool fans off, a.k.a. sober them up before the game ends. Had to be. Harry Carey would sit out there on Sundays and just get hammered in center field and chill under the shower, man. I think I don't know why that's not done now. Because like I said a second ago, like going to a ball game is so hot these days. Yeah, put a few showers up in there, man. Like, let's just get after it, dude. Um, if you're going to charge me $8.50 for a beer, can I at least take a shower in center field, right? But like, that's awesome, dude. Like you got beer halls and then you got a shower head in center field. I'm living my life. I didn't even come for the baseball game. No wonder they had the disco demolition at Comiskey Park. Like what kind of crowds are you attracting with beer halls and showers in center field? Like the kind that are going to get hammered, man. Like the disco demolition, dude. I don't know what year that was. That like 76 or something like that. I really have no idea. You watch footage. You ever watch footage? from the disco demolition it is bonkers you can watch the whole game and the whole thing on youtube harry carey and i think jimmy pearsall are calling the game and it's a double header right so the first game happens and then in between the first and the second game they're gonna burn some disco records right because there's a local rock station i don't know what it is about these rock stations doing the promotions let's burn records and let's put a guy on the roof of the astrodome right like radio stations in the 70s anchorman style crazy stuff so between the double headers they're gonna burn some disco records right like 50,000 people come out man so many people come out to the game because that's what they wanted they were like we need a promotion 
to get people to the game. Well, it worked, right? So there's like, they're like, use some dynamite to blow up the records. But then all of a sudden, like, this, the, the scene turns black and there are like people climbing the foul poles and like swinging them back and forth. And then there are actual fires on the field. It's like, Literally, the announcers, Jimmy Pearsall, I think it's Jimmy, he's over the PA system saying, fans, please return to your seat so we can play the second game. Meanwhile, while he's making that announcement, fans are starting real life big bonfires on the field. And I'm watching this clip and I'm like, yo, dog, you don't need to start the second game. You need to run for cover. That's a fucking fire, man. You better go. And it was just crazy, man. But in the 70s, people were doing weird stuff, man. Acid and LSD, like folks were being firecrackers. The games like in the 70s, there weren't metal detectors and they didn't check your bags. So when you go to a ball game now, and you wonder why you have to empty your pockets and go through a metal detector. It's shit like disco demolition because, I don't know, you can't bring explosives into a fucking ballpark and start a fire in between game one and game two. It's just not going to work, pal. And that was just crazy stuff, dude. And so I got to imagine, are you surprised that something like disco demolition happened at Comiskey because it was the world's largest outdoor saloon, right? Crazy. What's funny, it was, it was built on a landfill. And I feel like that just means we're having a party, man. Like, let's just get disgusting, dude. Like, that's what it is. And But also, check this out. One of the coolest things about Comiskey Park is they may have had it in right field, too. I never went to Old Comiskey. They may have had it in right field, but I know for sure in left field – because Carlton Fisk would play catcher and he would play some left field. And I found some footage of it during, I think, like a 1990 game on YouTube. They had a picnic area in left field. So if the left fielders out there where the wall was, there was a chain link fence. And behind that wall, there were fans and there was a picnic area. And they could eat food and watch the game at ground level and talk to whoever was in left field. So basically what they did was that area they sort of cleared out. So those folks that were sitting behind the left field fence who who just, there were picnic tables back there, they would just eat and talk to the left fielder. Then above them were like the normal stands or whatever. And I thought that was so cool that they had this badass picnic area. Like that would be so fun. I don't know if there are any baseball parks that have that, right? A lot of parks, if there's any open areas back there, I think it's the bullpen and stuff like that. But that would be awesome to watch a professional baseball game like that and to be on ground level like that is like watching a Little League game and you're just down there chilling, right? And you're in Chicago, so you know you're getting old styles and butt heavies just flowing through your veins. Go get a shower, rinse off, sober up, and go, man. But Comiskey was a hell of a ballpark, dude. But then their scoreboard, listen, if you haven't, I'll do my best to explain what I like about this scoreboard. But if you've never seen it, just hit pause real quick and go to YouTube and just search Comiskey Park scoreboard. But there were a few iterations of the scoreboard because it was edited over time and remodeled until 1991 when they actually tore the stadium down. But this was a big, beautiful scoreboard. Like, it always at least had a Winston and a Budweiser beer logo on the scoreboard now you know me when it comes to baseball nostalgia if you've got a smoke billboard like a cigarette billboard and a booze billboard yo we're cooking i love it the smokes and the booze like that's baseball man and the scoreboards were just so rad it had these um like these exploding things on the top of them with these pinwheels and when players would hit home runs it would just like shoot fireworks out of it but one time like one of the 
missiles that comes out of the top and shot to second base. It didn't kill anybody. It didn't hurt anybody. But, uh, you know, it, it shot to second base like a big. It's like watching WWF or something. When the pyrotechnics come up, that's what the scoreboard did. And it was a big deal in the 70s because nobody else had a scoreboard like this. So it's just this big, beautiful scoreboard, really bright, man, with all these digital numbers on it. And, you know, you would have like your 76, which you, like, you know, like your 76 logo, which Dodger Stadium still has. And I absolutely love it. You would have like your Budweiser logo, your Winston and your Marlboro ad. And it was just this big, beautiful, just vintage 70s looking scoreboard. That's about the best way I can explain it. And yeah, when players would hit home runs there, the thing would just explode, man. And it, uh, yeah, go to YouTube and check it out. Hell of a scoreboard. Probably one of my all-time favorite scoreboards. Like, I think, I think Comiskey Park, Old Comiskey Park probably is my favorite scoreboard. Obviously, I like the Wrigley Field scoreboard. What they've got going on with the Dodgers, like, I like that scoreboard because that's still got, like, an old feel to it. Because Dodger Stadium would have been built... I think in 16, oh, hold on, hold on. Dodger Stadium surely would have had to been built. The The Mets came to Shea Stadium in, not 69, no, it would have been early 60s because the Mets' first year in existence was like, what, 61 or 62? And by that time, the Brooklyn Dodgers were already out in L.A., so that stadium must have been built in the 60s, but still, Dodger Stadium looks vintage, and I like the scoreboards out there. It's pretty rad, but yeah, my take for the scoreboard, give me the cigarette billboard, the beer billboard on the scoreboard, and just the big old-school digital letters, and dude, that's how it was, man. I loved it, but you know, when they tore it down, though, they ended up putting a lot of video boards into it, but it still just looked old, man, and I loved it, dude. Classic scoreboard. Okay, hold on. One more thing. Listen about Old Comiskey Park. And they had, uh, it was known that Comiskey Park was the scene of many masterful groundskeeping tricks by these two groundskeepers they had, a dude named Roger, Gene, and Emil. And they called it Camp Swampy. <laughs> That's what they did, right? So check this out. Starting in the late 60s, these guys, if the opposing or no if the White Sox pitcher if the White Sox had a sinker baller on the mound these groundskeeper dudes for the White Sox they would dig up the dirt in front of home plate and soak it with water when the White Sox had a sinker ball pitcher on the mound because that way when the hitter put the ball on the ground it would deaden the ball and slow it down but if the visiting pitcher had a sinker baller the groundskeepers for the Sox they would mix the dirt in front of home plate with clay and gasoline and burn it to make it really hard. So then when the Sox hit the opposing team's sinker baller, that ball would really get some movement on it. They could hit it harder. But then also the groundskeepers for the Sox, they would, the bullpen mounds, they would lower or raise the bullpen mounds to fuck up the visiting pitcher's rhythm. So when they would be warming up, they would be used to the mound, and then they would come out to the real-life mound, and they'd be like, oh, this doesn't feel right. Because <laughs> they would mess it up. They would either raise or lower the pitcher's mounds. Dude, completely crazy. And then also, like, it doesn't stop there. They would also, like, um, you know, cut the grass accordingly. Like, for a while, 
apparently the Sox had a shortstop that had limited range. Like he wasn't good moving to left or right. So they wouldn't, they wouldn't trim the grass on the right side of the field. So the ball would die, but then they had a stellar second baseman. So they would cut the grass short on that side because then it would mess with the visitors too. Right? So if you had a really good second baseman and they had a worse second baseman, just cut that grass short and then you'll hit some balls by their second baseman. But I can't get over the fact that they would mess with the bullpen mounts. That's like that episode of the office where Jim puts a, a a nickel, a few nickels every day in Dwight's handset, and then he takes them out. So when Dwight lifts up his phone, he hits himself in the face, and that's what it would be like with these mounts. And they go out to the mound, and they like just bust their ass because everything's completely different. All right, listen, the next ballpark I'm gonna cover is one of the legendary concrete donuts and that's three river stadium now the concrete donuts listen people bitch about the concrete donuts because they say they all look alike and they didn't have any character and they were dingy and smelly and plain and i'm like well hold on like that's not a bad thing like dingy and smelly i'm on board with right i told you about my bathroom experience at lnl tavern like if it doesn't smell a little funny you're probably not doing it right <laughs> you know so it's like I get that, like, the concrete donuts weren't... And now when I say concrete donut, I mean, like, the multi-purpose stadiums that they started building up in the 70s where they would, you know, house, like, a football and a baseball team, like Three Rivers, um, Riverfront. Um, what other ones did you have, really? Like, uh, the Kingdome, I think, was like a... No, the Kingdome was a dome, but I think that was also a donut. Shea Stadium was a concrete donut because the Jets had played there, right? So there are multiple stadiums. Right, these multi-purpose stadiums, but because they were just these circular monstrosities that were basically concrete, well, they called them concrete donuts, right? And you know, it's like, yeah, they were basic and plain, but a lot of a lot of old cool stuff was basic and plain. Like, you know, like I like I've I've got an old Nintendo still, right? And I'll play Double Dragon on it. I'll play Contra. I'll enter the cheat code, right? I'll hit select start if I want to play two players, right? And it's like a basic game. There's really nothing crazy about it but like it's just good because i liked it right and one of the crappy things about all these concrete donuts getting torn down is there were a lot of great things that happened in these parks right like for example the uh, the pirates at three rivers won a uh, a world series in 71 and 79 so it sort of sucks to see him go but the concrete donuts in themselves they were sort of like the john wayne of baseball parks right yeah they were badass. They were gritty and grungy and a little grimy. And they were, you know, they were what represented like hardcore 70s and 80s baseball, right? Like, yeah, you slide into the second baseman in a concrete donut, right? He may need a prosthetic leg afterwards. Like, it just it was just grit, right? You know, going into home plate and knocking over the catcher. And, yeah, these were basic stadiums, but I feel like they sort of represented that, you know? Now, I get, like, from... You know, they weren't like the best fan experience, I guess, in some instances because the way that, you know, the seating would be arranged because you had to accommodate two different sports, right? Sometimes you couldn't get as close to the action as you wanted, but, um, you know, the only concrete donut I ever went to was Bush Stadium, and that was when it was still up in 05. That was the last year before they built the new Bush Stadium. And I remember being so high up, I thought I was going to fucking fall. I had never been to one before. Right? At that point, I'd only been to Wrigley Field. I've only been to maybe a handful of stadiums tops in my life. I've been to, let me tell you, um, New Bush, uh, the Concrete Donut Bush. I've been to Wrigley. 
I've been to where the Marlins play, which I guess is called Marlins Park. And I've been to the Oakland Coliseum, which is also a concrete donut, which is so legit, man. And it's like with these concrete donuts, like if you go out to like Oakland and watch a game, it's like those are the hardcore fans that are there in these new fancy ballparks. They've got like leather recliners and hot tubs and beer gardens. And like, I don't want any of that. Like, I don't want to go to a ballpark and order like a raspberry infused beer or like a white claw with like an organic turkey slider. Like, I don't want that, right? Like, I want a shitty hot dog that's going to burn through my esophagus. I really want to put my liver to the test, right? Like, and I don't want to do it with a raspberry beer. It just doesn't feel good. You know what I mean? Like, new stadiums are all about, you know, profit and attracting like a corporate fan base because they've got like cool suites and stuff like that. But in these new ballparks, right, I know for a fact that there's no real chance of anyone sprinting naked on the field and getting hammered drunk for the love of the game. That's what the concrete donuts were, man. They were just simple, right? And I think they represented baseball pretty well, which um, because baseball is a simple sport, man. You hit, you got a stick and you hit a ball, man. But like, I get it. Like, there are a lot of beautiful ballparks out there that are nice. Like where the uh, where the Orioles play, where the Padres play, uh, the Giants, right? Those are supposed to be like phenomenal parks, and even New Bush, right? It was pretty fun. But like, you know, this is a baseball nostalgia podcast, man. So I like the grittiness of the the concrete donuts and really three river stadium does a pretty good job of that right but also on the old uh all the concrete donuts like baseball in the 70s and 80s and i know this is 70s episode right but like it streams into the 80s a little bit but do you remember and i may have talked about this a couple episodes ago where all the old stadiums had all the team logos on the outfield walls you know i love that like you could be watching a reds cubs game and there's, like, the Astros and the Expos logos on the outfield wall. Like, I loved that, man. It was just so rad. And then, like, the fields were always so weird. Like, if you watch a game from the 70s on YouTube, like, in any stadium, really, there's just, like, trash just floating in the outfield. And then, like, I remember the fence at Candlestick Park was, like, this weird, janky, like, chain link sort of type fence and then there was like an open gap and then another fence where fans were at and then they would like jump the fence to catch a home run ball and it was just like someone's gonna need stitches man <laughs> like this is really uh it's, it's, it's a crazy scene dude but I figure three rivers you know is a pretty good one of the best most legendary concrete donuts okay first and foremost this is a real deal I'm not making this up three river stadium was built on a Delaware Indian burial ground. I don't mess with that shit, man. You heard me talk about poltergeist, right? That's the premise of the movie Poltergeist, is they built the houses on an Indian burial ground. You don't build anything on an Indian burial ground, right? But the pirates did. Legit built it on an Indian burial ground. You're just asking for the spirits of the dead to come and get you, man. Like, that's not a good thing right there. Like, chairs are going to be moving. I mean, I would imagine, like, maybe the bench was moving, baseballs were moving, gloves were floating in there. I'm not too sure, but I do know that as soon as the Pirates got into the stadium, they ended a 10-year drought, um, a 10-year championship drought. So they get in the stadium in 1970. They built three rivers on an Indian burial ground, get in the stadium, like, halfway through 1970. In 1971, they win a World Series. Then in 1979, they win a World Series. And I'm like, okay, like, what, did, what, what happened here, man? Like, every may, maybe being built on an Indian burial ground is a good thing. Maybe they used the spirits of the dead to win. I'm not too sure. But 
I think now the Indian or the, the pirates are really bad for a long time. And I think now they're paying the price for having an old stadium built on an Indian burial ground. Because when you look at their wild cards and them losing all the wild card games, like Madison Bumgarner and Jake Arietta. And did they lose one to Noah Syndergaard or something like that? Like, I don't remember, but they could just never get past that streak. And it's just like, yo, they're cursed for sure. Like people want to talk about like the Cubs goat curse and the curse of Babe Ruth, like legit three rivers was built on an Indian burial ground. But like I said, they won two world series there, man. It's completely crazy, dude. Um, but three rivers was a wild place, man. And it was also pretty innovative. So the Steelers played there as well, man, which is like, could you imagine? Like, that would be something crazy, dude, to have this one stadium where the Steelers and the Pirates played. Like, you talk about gritty Pennsylvania, you know, stuff going on right here, man, because those are two tough teams. The Steelers of the 70s, I mean, they won Super Bowls up in there. Probably like three or four Super Bowls, I guess. I'm not well-versed on, you know, Super Bowl victories or whatever, but Terry Bradshaw won four Super Bowls, and I don't know if they were all at Three Rivers or not. I couldn't tell you, but Three Rivers, dude, had a lot of firsts. As far as baseball was concerned, they had carpet in the clubhouse. They had air conditioning in the clubhouse, which is like, you guys really didn't have AC in the clubhouse? Jesus, man. That's what these gritty ball players, dude. Like, they didn't need air conditioning. Like, I'm just like, shit, man, I gotta, I'm hot all the time, man, you know, but it's because I eat like shit, so whatever. But also, they had a player's parking lot, which players were really excited about. Because I kid you not, at Forbes Field, <laughs> which Forbes Field was where the Pirates played before they played at Three Rivers. And Forbes Field was was described as a dungeon. If you wanted to get to the home clubhouse or the visiting clubhouse, you had to walk down a dirt path and go through the home dugout. So if you were so if you played at Forbes Field against the Pirates and you're like a Cubs pitcher and you know you're gonna get rocked, when you want to go to your clubhouse, you gotta walk through the Pirates dugout, through a dirt path. Like it's a nineteen twenty barnstorming Great Depression team. Like what in the world? And so and yeah, when players went to play at Forbes Field, they had to like park at a gas station and then walk to the ballpark. I'm like, what is this? Like are you going to a house party? And you're like, bro, I gotta find somewhere to park, man. Where'd I leave my car at, dog? I gotta pitch today. And it's like, what the heck? And one time even a guy, I think it was Steve Blass, I don't know who it was, actually like pitched a game and then had his car towed because he parked it at a gas station. So after the game he walks down to the gas station and his car is gone, and it's just like, what in the world happened here, man? And that's what I'm saying, dude, just the grid of 70s. So when they're just like, oh, we got a parking lot now, it's like, bro, 70s baseball players, they were just gritty, man, because they had to park at 7-Eleven, dude, get a large coffee, crush up their greenies on the way to the park and drink it while they're walking down the road. I'm like, hell yeah, man, these guys are awesome, dude. But, you know, it wasn't uncommon for baseball players in the 70s to smoke during games, you know, cigarettes, cigars, and stuff like that, right? So listen, Steve Blass, he was a Pirates pitcher, and he would always keep a legit cigar stash in his locker, right? But he started to notice that some of his cigars were missing. Well, he knew that Terry Bradshaw, uh, Steelers quarterback, knew where his locker was. So he's like, uh, someone ratted Terry out and was like, hey, man, Terry, uh, Terry's stealing your cigars or whatever. He was sending a clubhouse kid to Steve's dugout <laughs> to get cigars because I guess... Terry was smoking cigars, I guess, during practice and games or whatever. And Steve had him probably for the same thing, you know, take the edge off from the greenies and the 7-Eleven coffee. And apparently the whole time, Steve was stealing the cigars from Danny Murtaugh, who's a legendary Pirates coach. I mean, legendary Pirates coach. Big, 
fat wad of Charles so big, you get a contact buzz looking at it, man. I mean, his nicotine high had to be so legit. He could like solve equations in his head and just fill up a Dr. Pepper bottle in two seconds, man. Like I'm talking good stuff, dude. But yeah, man, that's so that's sort of the story, man. I think Three Rivers is one of the most iconic, um, you know, concrete donuts out there because the Pirates teams of the 70s. And then once you get into the 90s, like, I mean, I know that, you know, the 90s Pirates lost three, you know, NLCSs in a row. But you had Barry Bonds, Bobby Bo, Andy Van Slyke, Sid Bream was on like, what, one of those? Was Sid Bream on any of those teams? Sid Bream was on the 92 Braves team that beat the Pirates. I think Sid Bream was on the 91 and 90 probably Pittsburgh Pirates teams or whatever. Then you had Jim Leland, dude, who was the manager of those teams. Man, he's yelling at Barry Bonds, dude, cussing at him. He's smoking cigarettes too, man. And it's just, um, it, dude, just, just iconic teams, man. But like the We Are Family Pirates, dude, so legit. But it was, so the, uh, let me get back to actual Three Rivers, though. Three Rivers sort of, um, a lot of the fans didn't really get on board with Three Rivers because they thought Forbes Field was, like, super cozy, right? And there were a lot of cool things that happened in Forbes Field, like Bill Mazeroski's walk-off home run in Game 7. Babe Ruth hit his 714th home run at Forbes Field, and it was a really cozy, like, old-school ballpark, sort of like Comiskey or like Wrigley Field where you have like the double grandstands that look so old. You know what I mean? Is that the right word for them? Like grandstands where you've got a level of seating and then like the post that will like block your view. And then you've got a level of seats above you. Like Wrigley's like that. You'll have a big post in your way if you don't watch out. And I love that style of ballpark. That's like what Okamiski had, right? It's just that grandstand seating. So did like Tiger Stadium, right? And like parts of Fenway, I believe, do as well. And I think Forbes Field was like that, too. And so a lot of fans liked it because it was cozy. And it's sort of just like, you know, how I feel about the concrete donut, like, getting torn down. Like, fans probably felt about Forbes Field as well because that was this cozy place with, like, the walk-off World Series in, oh, God, I don't know when that was. The Bill Mazeroski home, what was that, like, in 60 or 61? I might have that in front of me. I really don't know. But yeah, Babe Ruth hit the 714th home run there. So what they did was when Three Rivers was built, they took a big chunk of the wall that Bill Mazeroski hit that home run over. It was in 1960, by the way. Uh, Bill Mazeroski hit that 1960 World Series walk-off home run. They took a big chunk of wall, and they brought it with them to Three Rivers. They also brought like a 2,000-pound Honus Wagner statue with them. And I'm like, dude, now that's legit, man. Like, You know I'm one for vandalism. And not that I would damage it, no, but like, how did they move that sucker and steal it, right? Like, You ever see those people that like steal ATMs on TV? I'm like, how'd you move this big-ass Honus Wagner statue? Who? Honus Wagner, if you've never watched the Ken Burns baseball documentary, dude, one of the greatest, one of my favorite ball players ever, dude. They said he was, dude, that was back though, like in the Honus Wagner days, where guys were like working at the coal mines and then took up baseball, man. Like those guys were rugged. Those were the type of guys that would like step on a bear trap and just like walk it off. You know what I mean? Just grit and guts, dude. And Honus Wagner was that guy, man. They said Honus Wagner's long, arms were so long, he could tie his shoes while he was standing up, man. Just this gangly dude. But, dude, phenomenal. He was, a, he was a shortstop, man. He's the one that's on that, whatever, like the T406 card that's worth so much money or whatever. I don't, I don't know if he played at Forbes Field because I think the field before Forbes Field was like a place called Exhibition something or whatever. And that's probably where Honus Wagner played at because I don't know exactly how old, you know, Forbes Field was or whatever. But it's sad, man. When, 
when stadiums like Forbes Field and like Ebbets like go down and stuff like that, it's just like, oh man, you know. But um, well, I guess what I was getting at though, it's sort of that same way. Once you go with like PNC, and then look at stuff that happened at like Three Rivers, like for example, the first night World Series game was at Three Rivers. Roberto Clemente's three thousand hit at Three Rivers. John Candelaria's no hitter when he was twenty two years old against the Dodgers that was at Three Rivers, right? But listen to this. The funny thing about that no-hitter ball, that was in maybe 78. John Candelaria throws this no-hitter as a 22-year-old against the Dodgers, right? Basically, all nine innings retires the hitters in order with the exception of the third because he like, walked a guy, there were a couple errors or whatever, right? So he throws the no-hitter in 78. Like three or four years later, like he, it's over the winter time and he needs to get some practice in, right? And I don't know how, but the only baseball he has – is the 78 no-hitter against the Dodgers. And so he has this one baseball where he threw his no-hitter. But he's like, man, I got to practice ball, though. So he ruins the baseball, playing catch to himself, and just tossing it, well, launching it, because he's a pitcher, against the concrete wall. And he just slaughtered against the concrete wall this no-hitter ball because he had to get in some arm work. And I'm like, that's a baseball guy right there. And that in itself, bro, that right there explains the grit of three rivers and the dudes that played in it. All right, last but not least, this is probably the longest podcast I've recorded in a while, so I promise I'll shut up soon. I had a heater a little bit ago, man, so I got the nicotine running in my veins. So I'm hype, yo, what up? Um, no coffee, though, man. Coffee uh, gets me breathing heavy. I can't deal with that stuff. Um, listen, Shea Stadium. Shea Stadium was a beaut, man. So Shea Stadium was actually built in pure heartbreaking fashion because the uh, the the dude that ran the Brooklyn Dodgers, a guy named Walter O'Malley, I don't know if he was the owner or what he was, but he's like, uh, we need a new stadium, man. The, uh, the Dodgers, they were playing at Ebbets Field. The Dodgers played at Ebbets Field, right? Well, if the Dodgers played at Ebbets, what did the Giants play? Hold on. I got to line this up real quick. That's right. I feel so stupid. Brain fart when you're recording. The The New York Giants, who were the San Francisco Giants, played at the Polo Grounds. Duh. Then Ebbets Field was where the Brooklyn Dodgers played, right? Well, Walter O'Malley's like, I need a new stadium or we're going to leave, right? So the New York officials were like, we'll build you a stadium, but we don't want to do it in Brooklyn. We want you to come to like Flushing or whatever, Queens. And he's like, nah, man, I'm not doing that. I'll take my team out west. So he did the dip, right? And he's like, I'm leaving. So he took his team to Brooklyn. Then at the same time, whoever owned the Giants took them to San Francisco. So the so New York lost two teams in a very short span. Like, it might have been the span of a year or two. I don't know the exact dates. And uh, I'm like, holy crap, right? So the Mets got an expansion team, right? And how it went was there was a guy who – um. William Shea, that's where they got the name Shea Stadium, right? He might have went by Bill, if I'm not mistaken. I don't remember. And he was going to leverage this idea of the Continental League, which is an idea that I think Branch Rickey had, where it was going to be a third league in Major League Baseball and like this eight-team expansion or whatever. So he somehow leveraged that and into getting New York awarded an expansion team. So New York and Houston got expansion teams, right? And what's funny is I didn't realize this, but the New York Mets colors are blue and orange. Blue like the Dodgers, orange like the Giants. Completely crazy, man. And apparently when the New York came to town, that's sort of how things would look, man. It was it was heartbreaking that these fans had lost their team, but they had the Mets, right? 
the blue collar Mets. So it's like, it, it sort of makes me like the Mets even more. Like I'm a huge fan of the 86 Mets team, but I sort of, I guess like now more so than ever of like what the Mets stand for. So that's how this stadium was built. So once they got the expansion team, they built the stadium. And what, one of the raddest, craziest things about this stadium is you won't believe it, except I said it at the beginning of the podcast, but they had wood paneling in the dugouts. And that's why I was like, dude, no wonder why Lenny and Daryl and Doc were fucked up all the time. They were getting cheap beer and Coke because it was wood paneled. I'm telling you, anything that's wood panel is filthy and fun. And that's how it was. But to me, dude, yes, the wood paneling is a sign of luxury. Good breakfast, cheap beer, possibly some funny smells, but if you can look past all that, you, you get to heaven, man. It's like I grew up, the first house I ever lived in was a trailer that had wood-paneled walls, and some of my best times were there. That's when I learned to pee outside. That's when, you know, I had all my Christmases at and stuff like that. Like, it's just the wood paneling. It brings about the good egg and the good pancake, and it spits technology out the window, and it's just, it's like... The concrete donut, man. It just feels good, dude. I love a wood-paneled wall, man. I need a wood-paneled car, man. You know, Willie Stargell had a wood-paneled Dodge van with V8 and, like, uh, straight pipes out the back of it. Dude, it's so legit. He did. I got the picture. Man, I put it on my Instagram. Greatest show on dirt. Look me up. Um, ooh. <laughs> and um, so, basically, this place was futuristic when it was built. But then, all of a sudden, people thought it was sort of a dump. But then it went back and then it inspired a lot of love and loyalty because of like what it represented, right? And it's sort of like Shea represents, I think, what a lot of folks think of like the concrete donuts of just like, yo, we liked it, then we hated it, but then it sort of grew on us, right? And that's what always breaks my heart that like when older stadiums got tore down, like I can't believe they tore down old Yankee Stadium. Like that is crazy to me because of all the stuff that had happened there, right? But either way... um, What's funny about Shea, it was actually built to be a dome, but the Mets stopped that because they wanted people to come to a baseball game and to be able to enjoy a summer day, and that sort of thing I agree with, man. Like, part of baseball is just being in the summer and being on the brink of dehydration with a stunning farmer's tan, you know what I mean? That's what I like. I feel like you need to work to go to a game, you know? So... That uh, that sort of it was crazy. I didn't know it was supposed to be built as a dome, but it was. But that was when I think domes were sort of the big thing because they were building the dome down in Houston or whatever. Now, Shea Stadium had some future innovations. So first and foremost, it had an escalator system that would carry you to every seating level. Right. And this was a concrete donut. So it would come it would come pretty high. Right. Wait, actually, hold on. Shea Stadium wasn't a concrete donut because I think it had. Even though it housed the Jets, the Jets left in 83. And I actually, now that I think about it, I don't believe that they closed Shea Stadium completely. I believe in center field, it was open in the back. So I don't know if you would actually call Shea Stadium a true concrete donut, but it was a multi-purpose stadium until 83, and then the Jets left. And that's when they went to East Rutherford, New Jersey to play football, which is, I guess now met life or whatever, right? And... um but it was super innovative with the way that Shea Stadium did it because they had like this two-motor operated system that would just move the seats around to go from baseball to football. Completely crazy, dude. Um, but listen, you get – remember when I told you 
that Three Rivers was built on an Indian burial ground. Like, that is some heavy existential stuff, right? It's sort of like some stuff like that at Shea Stadium. Shea wasn't built on Indian burial ground, but it was christened on April 16th, 1964. Team officials, William Shea, I don't know who got it, but William Shea had the water. They got holy water from the Gowanus Canal in Brooklyn, which was near where the Dodgers play in Brooklyn. So they got water from this canal by where the Dodgers play. They got water from the Harlem River at the exact location where it passed the old polo grounds. So you've got holy water from the Dodgers. You've got water from the Dodgers, water from the Giants. They made it holy with the Catholic priest. So I guess they went to a Catholic priest and said, hey, man, we want to christen our new stadium, and we got this holy water out of the creek. Like, Can you help us with it? But that is why sports is so powerful because the 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 uh, the pope or the Catholic priest or whatever was probably like, well, hell yeah, I'll bless that water. Go Mets, go. So he blesses the water, right? And on an on-field ceremony, William Shea baptizes the Mets players on the field, I guess he sprinkles them with this holy water that's filled up in an old champagne bottle that someone probably got hammered off of. And that's how it did it. That's what made it their new home, right? So they adopted the colors of the Dodgers and the Giants who had left. Then they got holy water from the sites that they played baseball on. They got just water, had it blessed by a a Catholic priest and played ball, and then they won a World Series as a Miracle Mets in 69, which was completely nuts because I think they were like 100 to 1 odds to win that, and in 69, they beat, shit, they beat a a Baltimore Orioles team that I think won 109 games or something like that, and that was also the year of the Black Cat where they played the Cubs, and the Cubs blew the division lead. Like, what's new, pal? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, completely crazy. Let's see, do I have any other notes on Shea? Um, no, I don't think so. It was really weird about playing football at Shea, though. I do have this note. that, And this is sort of why the Jets left, because it was mostly the Mets made most of these decisions. And so the Jets were sort of just like the first few weeks of the season, they had to play all road games. And then until the second month of the season, the Jets could not play with fans at full seating capacity because of the baseball configuration, because some of those years the Mets were playing into October, right? And also, like, half the football playing field was a dirt infield, and when it rained, it was awful. Like, it was just like playing touch football in grade school, you know? So, like, they couldn't do that sort of thing, and I think that's probably where the multi-purpose stadium failed was because, like, in the, for example, the situation of the Pirates and... The Steelers at Three Rivers, like they both wanted new parks because I think once you get like half, you know, half football, half baseball, like each team isn't really getting, you know, the the surface and the environment that they really need to play well and to play safe too, right? Because all these multi-purpose stadiums had AstroTurf and they were detrimental to players in their knees and things like that. Like that's one of the reasons why Eric Davis was probably hurt so much, and I think Eric Davis wrecked his knees pretty good. Probably Dave Parker, too, because Dave Parker had bad knees from playing football, but it's no doubt the turf that he played on at Three Rivers and, you know, what Eric Davis played on at Riverfront had to advance those issues because it was just such a hard surface to play on. Then the ball would scoot when you hit it on the AstroTurf. You could watch 
games on YouTube from the 70s and 80s, and you'll see someone hit a ball, and you're like, oh, that's a single. And then it rolls all the way to the wall because it's got an exit velocity of 120 once it hits the turf. And it's like, what in the world, man? It's just crazy stuff. Um, shoot, we're at, we're at an hour 14. Listen, I don't think I have any more time. I'm going to have to stop it here. I don't know that I'll do a 70s part four podcast, but... I think sometime in the next month, I'll have to cover some uniforms from the 70s, namely the White Sox uniforms with the collars and the shorts. Like, I feel like I have to talk about that. Here, let me make sure I didn't miss anything crazy real quick. Nope. Those were the only um, stadiums that I had to talk about. Like, I knew at some point, like, I want to go back and talk about veterans and Riverfront, Old Bush and things like that. But I'll just have to do that on later episodes, you know, but. Otherwise, thank you so much for listening to the podcast. I'm on Instagram, Greatest Show on Dirt. Um, Twitter, Greatest on Dirt. And then Facebook, you can just search Greatest Show on Dirt. But most of my cool stuff is on Instagram. So if you have an Instagram, Greatest Show on Dirt is probably where I think it's Greatest Show on Dirt. You know, I always forget my handles on all these social medias. But that's what happens when you're 37. Greatest Show on Dirt on Instagram. It'll be in the link description for this thing or whatever. But I just want to thank everybody who... You know, if you listen to the podcast, or if you're listening to it now, or listen to previous episodes, if you listen to the podcast and you follow me on social media and you leave comments and, you know, like my stuff, I really, really appreciate it. It motivates me more than ever to keep recording a podcast. And, you know, the fact that even people are listening to it now is crazy because the first year, first two years I recorded, I don't think anybody listened, but my mom and my wife. And, uh, so this is nice. You know, I really appreciate it. I, I try to comment on stuff as much as I can, but having a 10-month-old and a full-time job, it's hard just to even get a podcast uploaded, let alone, you know, comment on people and stuff. So I try to comment as much as I can just to tell everybody thanks. And if, if, if you've commented on stuff and I don't, I just want to tell you thanks for, you know, commenting on the stuff. It, uh, it you know, it, it makes me feel good because I just want, you know, to create an environment where, you know, we can talk old school baseball, nostalgia baseball, remember how it was and, you know, sort of apply it to like our families now and things like that. You know, whether we have kids or, you know, parents that are still alive, like, you know, I dig through this old baseball stuff and it makes me want to call my dad at 2 p.m. on a Tuesday, right? Because I know he's probably in his garage tinkering with a lawnmower engine. And that's what I think, you know, sort of going down memory lane like this does is, you know, a lot of people you know, we'll say like, oh, you want to live in the past and this and that or the other, right? And that's not what it's about with me, man. I think it's about definitely embracing the past and, you know, how we feel about the past and how it made us feel and how it makes us feel now to think about it, but then apply that to, you know, the people that are around us now, whether if we have parents or grandparents are still alive or kids in our lives. And I think it's a wonderful thing to do. So, um, and everybody that comments and likes and listens to the podcast, you make that possible for me. And, you know, if I can help make that possible for you, uh, it makes me feel really good. So thank you for that. And otherwise, I'll end the podcast now. Thank you for listening. And until next time, have a uh, phenomenal week. I'll record an episode before Christmas for sure. And probably have to talk about favorite Christmas movies. So yeah, okay. I'll catch you guys later. Thanks. Bye.